welcome, welcome to episode 51 of the Fly Route Podcast. I am your host, Anthony, a.k.a. Sir Capalot, a.k.a. the Murray Up Offense, a.k.a. Run CMC, a.k.a. Tony Playboy, and a.k.a. Forgive and Fournette. And I have an exciting show for you today. I am going to spill some tea on the Denver Broncos and the COVID outbreak that caused them to play a game without a quarterback last season. I am going to give you my fly five picks going into week one of the NFL season. I am going to give you the Murray Up offense, otherwise here known as the two-minute warning, where I give you the hottest sports news in the week in under two Minutes. I'm going to give you my division winners and the playoff bracket for the NFL this season. And last but definitely not least, I am going to give a big, big, big ballers bouquet to Leonard Fournette of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for his Hurricane Ida relief efforts. The fly route pod. The fly route pod. The fly route pod. The fly route pod. Welcome to the tea off. Oh, spit that tea, sis. This is how I like to start the show off. I like to spill some tea on our favorite athletes and some of the crazy situations they get themselves into. And this week, we got to spill tea on not just a single athlete, but the entire quarterback room of the Denver Broncos last year. So that's Drew Locke, Blake Bortles. Jeff Driscoll, and that's probably where anybody who pays any attention, even a lot of attention, would have stopped on knowing the depth chart for the Broncos quarterbacks, but also Brett Rapine. And look, everybody might remember this, and that is last year where the Denver Broncos played the New Orleans Saints and had to start a practice squad wide receiver, not a practice squad quarterback, but a practice squad wide receiver at quarterback in a game. He only completed one of his nine passes for 13 yards through two picks, and the Denver Broncos got absolutely rocked by the New Orleans Saints, 31-2-3. Now, this was an embarrassing moment for the NFL in general, a super embarrassing moment for the Denver Broncos, of course, and it was Kind of a mystery at the time why the NFL allowed the Baltimore Ravens, who had a COVID outbreak a little bit earlier that same week, postponed their game, but did not allow the Denver Broncos to do the same. And this is actually something that we talked about a little bit on the Fly Route podcast when it first happened. We we heard the rumors and allegations that in some which way or form, the Denver Broncos were trying to skirt the COVID protocols were not upfront and forthcoming with the investigation that the NFL put into place. And we also heard that the NFL ended up having to use surveillance footage from the practice facility to verify the close contacts that caused them to lose their entire quarterback room. And at that time, I was like, look, if it had to go that far, Clearly, Denver did something pretty, pretty, pretty wrong, which I will get to in just a second here. But more importantly, deserved every single bit of it. And even then, I was on that side. But now when we find out exactly 
what happened with the Denver Broncos, I am doubly on that side. Like, what a disaster this organization had to deal with. And it actually made a lot of decisions that the Denver Broncos made after that season really come into perspective. So, quarterback Jeff Driscoll had COVID. He was positive. And then the other three quarterbacks that the Denver Broncos had were deemed as a close contact. That's Drew Locke, Blake Bortles, and Brett, who we will no longer talk about because he's not very relevant. Now, the reason why, though, is because they were obviously around each other without masks based off how the NFL protocol works. So recently on the Los Angeles Times, the report came out where we find out exactly what the Denver Broncos did. So all four guys, Drew Locke, Jeff Driscoll, Blake Borders, and co. took their COVID tracing devices, went into a room to watch film and put the devices in the four separate corners of the room while they watched film sitting at a table together. Like they couldn't spend an hour sitting, I guess, six feet apart. Not sure how big this room was, but they couldn't spend an hour sitting six feet apart watching film. So they decided to try to trick the system. And then when they got caught, because I don't know, it is oddly fucking weird for you to be in a film session where the people are sitting in four different corners. Where's the TV at? Like, I don't know what originally prompted the NFL to be as thorough as they were in this investigation. But what ended up happening is they did not want to come forward. The Denver Broncos were very shady. All the quarterbacks of the room decided to actively lie about the situation and try to obfuscate the NFL investigation. This is actually the main reason why the NFL did not allow them to postpone the game. Even though John Elway pleaded, according to the Los Angeles Times, multiple times with Roger Goodell. But obviously, this makes a lot of sense. You got caught trying to skirt the protocol actively for really not even a good reason. Like, what did you have to gain sitting directly next to each other for like an hour in a small room during a film watching session? Like, what is the risk-reward matrix of the quarterbacks in this room? And all four of them were like, yeah, let's just do it. But outside of Drew Locke, and Brett, the other two quarterbacks in that quarterback room are gone. They obviously should have known better. And it's not surprising that they got rid of them. To me, it's also not surprising that they made that move for Teddy Bridgewater as well. So when this happened, Drew Locke said in a statement this. In a controlled and socially distanced area, we have determined that was a lie. We let our masking slip for a limited amount of time. We determined that was also a lie because you just took them off on purpose in an honest mistake, but one I will own. It was not a mistake. It was a choice. This is just not franchise quarterback material. I mean, you've heard me talk about Drew Locke, the poor touchdown to interception ratio, the poor completion percentage ratio, like literally nothing about Drew Locke said, I want that guy to lead my franchise and be the most important player on the field for my team. Not surprising, given his horrible decision-making on the field, that he also had it off the field. They brought in Teddy Bridgewater, an adult. They basically cleaned house on their quarterback room. Why? Because unsurprisingly, a room full of adults had zero adults in it. And it cost them a game in the most embarrassing fashion possible. 
there's really nothing else that you need to say about this. But it did make me think a little bit about Cam Newton losing his starting job and then losing his job job with the New England Patriots. How with these COVID protocols and especially how stringent they've made it for players who are not vaccinated, that that actually ends up mattering. For a backup quarterback, that actually really matters. A guy that has to be available at a moment's notice where because one person gets it, close contacts, the quarterbacks spend a lot of time with each other, you know, working together, watching film together, in rooms together, getting to learn the playbook with each other. Now vaccinated player gets close contacted, you're down to your third string or automatically. That guy's probably not even getting scout team reps during the season. This stuff really matters. This stuff really matters and it will continue to matter for the rest of this season. And that was your tee off. Oh, 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 spit that tea, sis. All right, all right, all right. I want to get into the Murray Up offense, the Murray Up offense. And I'm calling it the Murray Up offense because I want to start this segment talking to you about Latavius Murray and giving you a little fly route for Latavius Murray. So the Saints cut Latavius Murray after reportedly asking him to take a pay cut like five days before the season started, which sidebar, dirty, trifling, stank move by the New Orleans Saints. They could have cut him way earlier. They knew his cap situation, which is not which is not huge, by the way. He only gets paid like $3 million this year. They knew their situation in accordance to the cap, but they waited until five days before the season when the market should dry up for him and other places he can go to ask him to take a pay cut. And kudos to Latavius Murray for standing his ground, saying no, and that proceeded to him being cut slash released. And I don't blame him at all. The Saints are rebuilding. Their Super Bowl window is 100% closed. And there's no reason to take a pay cut to stay on that team when you are Latavius Murray. He's only making $3 million. So it's a, a pay cut from $3 million when you play in the NFL is actually quite significant because it wasn't like you were already getting paid a ridiculous amount of money in the first place. And he is definitely a good, good back especially a good backup or a number two guy over the past two seasons behind Alvin Kamara he's has over 1700 all-purpose yards and 11 touchdowns when Alvin Kamara has went down he's averaging near 150 yards a game the man steps up when he is supposed to and with how light the Saints are with offensive weapons like look I understand like Tony He's coming, he's coming, and he looks like a good number two back. But this actually seems like quite a blow for them. But here are three teams that I want to see Latavius Murray on. And this is going interesting from least to most. And the least interesting to me, but one that I definitely think works, is the Atlanta Falcons. You move in division, not that far of a place for you to travel. You get to seed the Saints twice a year. But most importantly, the Falcons' number two running back on their depth chart is Cordell Patterson. Look, as a diehard Bears fan, I can tell you that this is not worthwhile. We have tried the Cordell Patterson out of the backfield experiment. We have tried the Cordell Patterson as a receiver experiment. And 
that's not to say that Cordell Patterson isn't a good player. He is a fantastic special teams player. He is going to bring his value on that alone. But no, he is not a number two running back for an NFL team. It's just not not happening. The number one running back is Mike Davis, who honestly I like and through a larger workload last year because of the Christian McCaffrey injury. He actually showed up. He did very well. But he only had like under 700 yards that season. Like, if we're being honest about Mike Davis, Mike Davis has played since 2015 in the NFL. And all time has around 1,500 total rushing yards. Like, Murray would automatically be the best back in Atlanta, which is something that I honestly believe. But more importantly, Atlanta having Mike Davis and Latavius Murray as a one-two punch might actually allow them to establish a real run game which is something that Atlanta has not been able to do for quite some time. Now, my number two team is actually the Buffalo Bills. I think this team's biggest weakness is being able to establish the run. Zach Moss had an okay rookie season last year, but the Zach Moss-Devon Singletary combo, which the Devon Singletary's run has been a little bit longer, has not been proven to be able to generate a run game at any point in their Bills tenure. Murray could be a big compliment to that running back room and give them a guy that can actually push people around, a big bruising back to establish the run for them. Murray's 6'3". I think Zach Moss is like 5'9". Five, nine, five, nine. Big difference. Big difference in body type. Big difference in size. This is a team that if he wanted to take a discount to play on, the Bills is a team to take a discount to play on where you can actually get the work that's one, very important. But B, you actually have legitimate Super Bowl chances this year. So if you're going to take a discount to play, why not go to Buffalo? Now, my third, and it's my most interesting, and is the one that you're going to hear every time a running back is available right now. And that's the Baltimore Ravens. Now, the Baltimore Ravens, I know they just signed Le'Veon Bell, which I will get to in a little bit during this segment. And the difference is he just got there. He didn't go through a camp. He didn't go through a preseason. It's going to take him some time to get on. That's the reason why he signed to the practice squad first instead of straight to the 53-man roster. But Latavius Murray, he is the best option for Baltimore. He is already in game shape. He's already had a preseason. He's already had a training camp. He can plug in and start playing right away once he understands the playbook and what you want of him. And we have seen, especially as we've seen the rookies come in, their rookie running backs pick up the playbook immediately and get going, that a veteran like Latavius Murray should be able to pick it up. And they lost both J.K. Dobbins and Justice Hill, so they desperately, desperately, desperately need some help in Baltimore for their run game. I think Latavius Murray would probably be the second best back behind Gus Edwards there. It would give them a continuous punch in Baltimore for being able to really make things work. I think role-wise, the workload, fit, etc., he's flourished in those backup roles and not having a lot of carries. He's also flourished some in the passing game which I think is the back that Baltimore could definitely use to give Lamar some more short passes to get some rhythm going. We know they're going to open up their offense some this year, but we also know their receiving core is pretty banged up early on. So I want to move on, and I want to actually talk about an interdivision thing here, and that's the Pittsburgh Steelers. T.J. Watt 
His holdout is finally over. That's great. He started practicing again with the team, participating in team drills. Today, I'm recording on Wednesday. Hopefully, this means that this man got paid what he's earned. And you've heard me speak on him before. Future Defensive Player of the Year had 13 sacks in each of the last three seasons or more than 13 sacks. How do you not pay that type of production? He has far outplayed the value of his rookie contract. And I'm not surprised that Pittsburgh finally got this thing handled out right before the season started because good organizations generally do not let talent like that walk. And the, the, a good analog for this that I was thinking about is the Raiders. Let's think about Khalil Mack. A couple years ago, Khalil Mack putting up great numbers in a similar situation, wants to get paid, and the Raiders decide instead of paying that type of production, they will trade that type of production and get all the draft picks in the world in the three years since he's left the Raiders he's had two interceptions a touchdown 14 forced fumbles 30 sacks and 143 tackles that is 10 sacks a season since he has left the Raiders they've still been trying to find their pass rush ever since three years later defensive coordinator after defensive coordinator draft pick after draft pick still looking to replace that production that Khalil Mack had. This is why when you get the guy and the guy overperforms all your expectations, you pay the guy. It's one of the reasons why I'm so frustrated watching the Bears handle the Allen Robinson situation. Now, reportedly, the holdup on this was actually the Steelers not wanting to guarantee money after the first year. Apparently, that's just kind of tradition for the Steelers. After the first year, they don't guarantee any of their money. This actually makes a lot of sense to me considering how things worked with Ben Roethlisberger this offseason. Most other quarterbacks in a similar situation think I'll all met Ryan, although not as bad, right? Had their team over a barrel with the cap coming down. But they could have just cut losses with Ben Roethlisberger. None of them were guaranteed. That makes a lot of sense to me. Why he was really eager to take that pay cut to stay on the team. If so... This is something that I found uniquely insane and kind of archaic about the Pittsburgh Steelers organization. And this is generally one of those organizations that you only talk about as being well run. Now, this actually made me think back to Le'Veon Bell, who held out from the Steelers several, several years back because he did not get the contract he wanted. There were reports that the Steelers were talking up to $70 million. I don't have the verification for those reports, but the guaranteed money was a big stickler for him. And in the context of the fact that he took a Jets deal that was only four years, $52 million, with well over half, almost two-thirds of that guaranteed, if that guaranteed money was the stickler for him, that makes even more sense to me. I feel like this is a mentality that the Steelers cannot survive in the modern NFL going forward. And they haven't been pressed by the right type of talent in the right situation to have to make the exception that might start breaking the floodgates for their organization. And it seems like TJ Watt is truly their match. Now, speaking on Le'Veon Bell, speaking on Le'Veon Bell, I want to move on down to the fact that Le'Veon Bell is signed with the practice squad for the Ravens. People are reported to believe that he's going to join the official roster later on. And now as a person that hyped up Le'Veon Bell signing to the Chiefs last season. In fact, we had an entire episode cover 
dedicated to Le'Veon Bell joining the Chiefs last year. And, but here's what I'm going to say. I'm not going to fall for the same story trice. Some say twice. I will say trice. This, for me, I truly believe is the final step for Le'Veon Bell. If it doesn't work out in Baltimore, he is officially washed. I know many people have already written him off as washed, but I want to give him one last chance. Since leaving Pittsburgh, we all know he has never been the same. Not even close. But I am willing to not put 100% of the blame of that on Le'Veon Bell. He leaves Pitt. He wants his money. I respect that, and I always will. And then he goes to the Jets. He ends up having career lows in yards per carry, yards per game, touchdowns outside of his season where he was injured and only played six games. Like, it is pretty, pretty bad. Now, is that all his fault? I don't think so. The Jets were a dumpster fire, and Adam Gase was literally the brightest flame. But then he goes to Kansas City. He goes to a fantastic team that lost in the Super Bowl, but was barely able to get any run or play on that team. Now, is this partially because Kansas City had a pass-happy offense? I mean, yes. They have Patrick Mahomes. They should have a pass-happy offense. But it also means that Andy Reid saw Le'Veon Bell in practice, saw him in his limited running games, and did not like what he saw. And he had some slick comments for Andy Reid afterwards. We're not going to get into that. But listen, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me a third time and maybe I'm just gullible. So I'm going to temper my expectations for Le'Veon Bell joining the Baltimore Ravens. But what I will say here is, if it does not work in Baltimore, Le'Veon just doesn't have it anymore. Baltimore with that offensive line and that running scheme who can run on literally any team in the league, unlike the Jets, who want to run all the time and a lot, unlike the Chiefs, where Gus Edwards, J.K. Dobbins, Mark Ingram were all able to average over five yards a carry, where Gus Edwards at 5.2 yards a carry was like top five, top three in the league in yards per carry. If you cannot run and run efficiently and well and put up numbers in this Baltimore offense, it's over for Le'Veon Bell. He doesn't have it anymore. This is literally the perfect situation and there is literally no more excuses. What's up, playboy? All right, all right, all right. I want to get into my fly five picks with you all today but first off the nfl is back and so is being able to bet on games that you were already watching while testing your nfl knowledge and making a lot of money do that with my bookie mybookie.ag has live in-game betting on every nfl game for my diehard cappers for all my fantasy heads and casuals they have prop bets such as the over under on fantasy points for players Use promo code FLY and receive a 100% match to your first deposit of up to $1,000. That's double your money, double your winnings with your first ever deposit using promo code FLY and make it a winning season for you at mybookie.ag. 
look at your boy paying some bills, paying some bills. So in honor of that, we're going to give you the fly five picks right now. So the first one I want to talk about is the odds on the Giants beating the Broncos, which is shocking to me, shocking to me. The money line is plus 140 on my bookie right now. Now, that's not a win that should really shock anybody if the Broncos lost to the Giants. The Broncos have excellent receiver talent. They've loaded up, adding Kadarius Toney, adding Kenny Galladay, already having Sterling Shepard. Evan Ingram could possibly come on. Who knows when? Saquon Barkley can catch it out the backfield, but also he's back and can run. He'll probably be on some type of limited reps, but he exists. They've made some additions to that defense to make it a little bit stronger. The Broncos are really only favored by three points. So, look, and New York is at home. So that tells me that. They are not confident that the Broncos are going to just come in here and take this game. It's going to be actually a very close game. And I like the money line for plus 140. That means if you bet $100, you would win $140. This is just too good and too juicy to pass up. This isn't a guaranteed pick, but it is something that I think is a big, big value pick for you all this week. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is my safest bet of the week. And my safest bet of the week is the Packers versus the Saints. The Packers need to cover the spread of five points. The line is minus 115. The Saints are going to be bad this year and the Packers are going to be good. I would be shocked, appalled, and kind of disgusted if the Packers could only beat this Saints team by five or less points. Basically, they got to win by a touchdown. Not even, not even hitting the field goal. Look, the Saints have no receivers early. Their wide receiver one is Marquez Callaway, who I like. But their wide receiver two is Ty Montgomery, who also might be listed on their running back depth chart now as well, that they get got rid of Latavius Murray. They are light. They do not have any depth. They've given up a lot of their depth and talent on defense as well, trying to get back under the cap this year. Uh, look, the, and the Saints aren't even able to play at home with home field advantage. They have to play the game in a neutral site, which means they are still playing in COVID conditions with no home team. Look, and absent Badiari, the Packers are pretty healthy. Rodgers is healthy. Aaron Jones is healthy. Devontae Adams is healthy. I don't understand how this is not one that you hammer on because this is a good easy win for you Packers by five now I want to talk about the game of the week now the game of the week to me is self-explanatory and needs no argument the game of the week to me is the Chiefs versus the Browns to be fair one I have the Browns winning this game the spread is six points at minus 110 both ways but personally I'm staying away from this the money line is plus 220 though on the Browns winning and I'm telling you the Browns will win so boy oh boy that is juicy but I'm not willing to put my money against the Chiefs just yet. But I truthfully believe that the Browns have a very strong chance at this game, particularly because Kansas City's offensive line will be a strength at some point in time. They've revamped it, got, got players that are actually healthy, that are really good at this game, but they're really new as well. The defensive line of the Cleveland Browns have worlds, worlds, worlds more continuity than the offensive line of the Kansas Chiefs. 
And they have also bolstered that defensive line and bolstered that defense. We are really going to get to see how good the Browns can be letting them match up with some people might say one of the highly favored Super Bowl favorites in the Kansas City Chiefs. I honestly believe that this is going to be a not actually super high scoring game. If it gets extremely prolific and high scoring, I think then the Chiefs will take it away. I don't want the I don't want anybody to get in a shootout with the Chiefs, to be honest. So I'm telling you right now, I believe the Browns will steal this one. I think the Browns are going to be very, very good this year. They're going to be able to run the ball, keep it away from Kansas City. They're going to be able to have an effective pass rush to limit the big plays from Mahomes. And they're going to have a strong game script that allows them to control Kansas City week one. Now, the next thing I want to talk to you all about are the games that I honestly believe that we are going to learn the most from this week. Now, the first for me is Miami versus New England. The Patriots are favored to win by three at minus 115 odds. I like that line for the Pats. I would take this line if you're a Pats fan or you just want to bet on this game. I would definitely take the the Patriots to cover the three-point spread. They are also at home in Foxborough. And we are going to learn a lot about both of these teams. So more than who's going to win, I want to talk about how important this game is for the narrative for both of these teams going forward. Mac Jones, we will finally get to see him against NFL starters and a coach on the other side who has schemed for him and is a Belichick disciple in Brian Flores. We know he can bring a well-schemed defense together and has done both of his years in Miami so far. And he knows what the Patriots offense wants to look like based off his time in New England, and they are trying to get back to some of the canon, the old Patriots way, getting Mac Jones back in. We had to see what this rebuilt Patriots offense will look like. They spent all that money to not look absolutely anemic like they did last year. They've upgraded in the quarterback position as far as throwing the ball, and we will know week one against this Miami team if the Patriots offensive weapons have taken a step forward necessary to justify any of the hype that they have received this season we will also get to see where the Patriots defense is and I think that's going to be big big I want to see what their secondary looks like especially with Stephon Gilmore starting on the PUP list because a lot of the prognosticators that believe in the Patriots are believing in the Patriots because of their ability to be carried by this defense On the other side of this, Miami is in a tough spot. Miami is in a prove-it year for Tua. He no longer has his safety blanket in Ryan Fitzpatrick. If Tua starts thinking up this game and can't get anything going, there is really nobody to turn to. Down on the depth chart, Tua is going to have to play through it, good or bad. And this is going to be a very strong descriptor of how much trust Brian Flores and that staff, that offensive staff, were at the top They turned it over significantly to get to his coordinator from Alabama, to get an offensive coordinator that wanted to co-coordinate and highlight to his strengths. We are going to see significantly by the game planning of this Dolphins team, especially playing into a defense that we know should be good, like the Patriots defense, how much they actually trust Tua. 
Also, we're going to get to see if this Dolphins offensive line takes the next step. They have been bad. They were young, but they have been bad. And they need to take a significant step forward for the Dolphins to even think about the playoffs this season. And the second one for me is the Washington football team versus the Los Angeles Chargers. And for me, this game feels a little like budget or great value Chiefs versus Browns. We got a stout defensive front that we expect to take another great leap forward this year. A highly prolific young QB with big play weapons and a rebuilt offensive line that should become a strength for them over time. We want to see what Ryan Fitzpatrick is going to do under center, what type of offense they plan to run, and whether or not Antonio Gibson can get all of this knockoff Christian McCaffrey-style offensive usage going that has been hyped up by North Turner and the rest of Ryan Rivera's staff. Justin Herbert, prolific his rookie year. We are going to want to see him do it again. We want to see if he can avoid a sophomore slump and, you know, really give legitimacy to all the hype surrounding him and the Chargers this year. I think this is going to be a very, very interesting game. These are two teams that I'm very high on and think that can actually come out and make the playoffs. Y'all, it's Tony Playboy. I want to give you my division predictions. We've talked individual predictions in the division. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to talk about who wins these divisions. Now, a first set of them aren't even an interesting conversation barring something catastrophic happening. That's the AFC West with the Chiefs, the NFC South with the Buccaneers, the NFC North with Green Bay, and the AFC East with the Bills. Now, granted, there's been a lot of buzz about the Patriots coming up to challenge the Bills for the AFC East. People like Stephen A. Smith putting them on his top five. Count me out on that for now. The Patriots, I think, are a playoff team. I think that they will be good this year, but I do not have them challenging the Bills for the AFC East at all. The rest of those other divisions I listed are not going to be competitive. The fans of those teams that think it might work differently are delusional. Let's talk about the interesting divisions. That's the AFC South, the AFC North, the NFC East, and the NFC West. Those four divisions, I think, have usually at least two guys, two teams. Two teams that really have a shot at winning those that division, if not more. And that is really where I think the interesting conversation is going to come up to. So in the AFC North, in the AFC North, the two teams that I think will battle it out for winning this division are the Browns and the Ravens. I think the team that doesn't win the division will obviously be a wild card team, will be doing significantly well. But out of these two teams, I will take the Browns in this division. I think the Browns are a deeper team, a healthier team. They have a better receiving core. OBJ coming back from injury, Jarvis Landry, Austin Hooper, better running back tandem. J.K. Dobbins, Justin Hill is hurt. We know what Lamar can do with his legs. But on the other side, we are talking Nick Chubb and we are talking Kareem Hunt. That is just a significantly better option for the Browns. The defense is comparable, but I don't think the Browns defense would be as consistent or as frequently as good as the Baltimore is week in and week out. I just think Baltimore is one of the best coach defenses in the league. We know quarterback-wise, I would probably take Lamar. 
over Baker Mayfield, but that's only two of the things. We got the skill positions. We got special teams. We got everything else. I honestly believe that the Ravens will be competitive this year and will be quite good, but I think the Browns will edge this one out and take the AFC North. Now, we go down to the NFC East, and I've been stalwart here. No change, and it cannot change. I think the Washington football team will take this division, but right now there's a chance that they battle out with the Cowboys at the very tail end of the season, but squeak it out by a game or two in my opinion. This defense will carry them all the way through the season. Montez Sweat, Chase Young, etc., etc., and they've made some additions to their secondary that I think make them even better. They've made additions to their receiving corp that makes it even better, adding Curtis Samuels to Terry McLaurin and Logan Thomas. For the Cowboys, I think the Cowboys can be good. The Cowboys have a lot of potential, but there's just too many questions for the Cowboys. Is Dak going to be healthy all season, just on the ankle, let alone the baseball throwing injury he has? Is Zeke actually back? Is the offensive line going to be able to hold up and stay healthy? Uh, is the defense actually going to get better enough to matter? Because they were historically bad last season. They added Dan Quinn. He should hopefully be able to make some changes in just like scheme, coaching, etc. But they were terrible last year. Terrible last year. It's not like the Washington football team doesn't have any questions, if I'm being honest with you. They have a large question at quarterback if Ryan Fitzpatrick will be able to game manage and take them to that promised land, which I believe after watching him play with the Dolphins last year, if Tua never played, I think the Dolphins were probably a playoff team with Ryan Fitzpatrick last year, and he's coming to do that with the Washington football team, which are actually in a similar situation, if not better situation than the Dolphins were the prior year. The AFC South is a division that I think is honestly going to be the toughest for me to decide. I have the Colts and the Titans vying at the top of this division. The Titans, weirdly enough, had a lot of hype at the beginning of the season. Late offseason, when they got Julio Jones, when they got Bud Dupree. And the hype train has died down significantly for the Titans. And this one's going to be significantly closer for me because I think the Colts are going to be able to hit the ground running finally. They're going to get Carson Wentz back for game one after that foot surgery that he had to have. They have a decent defense for sure. They have a great O-line, even though week one they may be missing a, like, harder solo of their offensive line in Quentin Nelson, one of the best offensive linemen in football with a back injury he's currently dealing with. But they aren't missing him for an extended period of time with the foot surgery that he also had. And... The Colts being able to hit the ground running with all of their pieces, Sands, T.Y. Hilton, is going to be kind of important for them. I think it allows them to build momentum early, and it's what I think allows them to possibly challenge the Titans for the division. Now, the Titans, it's just hard for me to count out with all that talent. A.J. Brown is a all-world wide receiver. They added Julio Jones, one of the greatest wide receivers of this generation. Uh, running talent like Derrick Henry. Like, it's just hard to count out this team, even though they've changed offensive coordinators. Talent is talent. And I expect that talent to shine through. I expect that defense to get a little bit better with Bud Dupree joining in and some other changes made to the defensive side. But I think the defensive side is definitely the weakest part of this team. I'm still going to take the Titans for right now. I think their quarterback is more durable. I think their running back is better. 
I think their receiving situation is better. I think their defense is not. So I'm still going to take and bet on the Titans to come out of the AFC South. That leads us with the NFC West. And I know people will be thinking the NFC West should obviously be the hardest division for you to call here. And I don't think this is the hardest division for me to call. It's just the hardest division in football. You know, the Seahawks, the Rams, the 49ers, and the Cardinals. But the 49ers just got deeper in the offseason. Simply from getting guys back from injury, kind of like the Patriots did from opt-outs. And they also have a QB2 that can actually step in and win them games. Not just manage them games, not just try not to lose them games like all of the other backups before for the 49ers. They have a legitimate quarterback, too, that could win them games and trade Lance. And injuries was this team's kryptonite, and they shouldn't get that unlucky back-to-back. However, the Rams on the other side, who I think are the team to most challenge them for this division, have been hit by the injury bug early and in key places, losing their lead running back. They also lost a lot of key talent, especially on the defensive end, over free agency and the offseason, over a 17-game season. I am going to take the deeper team to come out of the division. Aaron Donald gets nicked. They're going to be significantly worse of a defense. God forbid. Jalen Ramsey misses a game or two. Significantly worse. Obviously, we never want to wish injuries on anybody. But the depth of the 49ers is the reason why it's easy for me to take them coming out of the NFC West. I don't know how fast Stafford will come off for the Rams. I do expect him to be good for them, though. But he's learning a new offense for the first time in a really long time in a whole new situation. A much better situation, but a whole new situation. There's just so much more continuity for the 49ers coming out of this. So that leaves us, right, with uh, teams that have coming out of the playoffs so far are the Chiefs, the Bills, the Browns, the Packers, the Buccaneers, the Titans, the Washington football team, and the 49ers. Now we got to talk about wild card teams. In the AFC, I have the Ravens, I have the Patriots, and I have the Chargers. I already told you about how good I think the Ravens are earlier, the Patriots I talked about a little bit earlier. The Chargers are the third team for me. I think there's a chance that if the Chargers stumble, the Colts can walk on in, but I legitimately think the Chargers would make the playoffs this year. Now in the NFC, my wild card teams, I have the Rams for sure, the Seahawks for sure. That's just because the NFC West is that good. And the last team that gets in can actually be quite bad. Like the Bears went 500 last year and made the playoffs because the rest of the NFC is not as good. So this last spot is a little tricky. So I think there's a couple of teams that are possible to getting in this last spot. I have the Cowboys, the Vikings, and I'll even toss in the Bears depending on when Justin Fields starts and how they can get their O-line together. But right now, I'm going to lean towards the Vikings with Dalvin Cook, with an improved defense, and with a star in Justin Jefferson, accompanied by a very, very, very well-established wideout in Adam Thielen. So I think the Vikings will be able to sneak in in the playoffs as I have it now. But these last spots, the Colts and like the Colts Chargers, the Vikings Dallas, is a super flux spot. That middle bottom of the league is always pretty hard to predict. And I think that is the spot that is going to change the most. But I actually like the rest of everything I have in my predictions here. And those are my predictions for the playoffs and the divisions this season.
it's a it's, it's, it's a playboy affair welcome to the final segment of the show the heart of the show baller's bouquet too often in the media people only want to focus on the negative and salacious things athletes do but never want to give them their credit where credit is due here i like to make a change so this week's baller's bouquet goes to Leonard Fournette of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for his Hurricane Ida relief efforts. Now, Leonard Fournette has donated over $100,000 to several charities on the ground supporting relief efforts in the wake of Hurricane Ida. He specifically tried to choose New Orleans-based grassroots nonprofits that are giving families and children and other people in vulnerable situations such as the elderly the things that they need to survive the aftermath of Hurricane Ida. And it's important because he says this, when it comes down to it, the city, the state will need a lot of relief money and labor. The hurricane left a lot of people without power and homes shelter, food, etc. Now, Leonard Fournette is actually from New Orleans. He played for Louisiana State University and he personally lived through Hurricane Katrina. He talks about it. He talks about how he wants to use his platform to help out the city and everyone that's around Louisiana, how his city of New Orleans was absolutely devastated. They had to start all over. They had to get a new house and he was only 10 at the time. He had to evacuate and spend time on the interstate because it was the only thing high enough above sea level to keep people safe. He talks about how they had to loot pharmacy for medicines for their parent for their grandparents, how they had to steal for food and other essentials, how we saw dead bodies floating in the water and how that trauma kind of stuck with him but impacts him in a way that makes him want to do the most that he can to help others experiencing a similar catastrophe. Now, because of this, he has set up the fund called Leonard Cares NOLA and has encouraged individuals, other players in his organization, and anybody that can to donate to Leonard Cares NOLA. And I want to point out that this is a fund that affects multiple different nonprofits. And I want to point out a couple of them and the things that they do for the people of Louisiana and why it's important, such as All Hands and Hearts, who addresses the long-term and immediate needs for communities impacted by natural disasters, such as shelter, food, water, Cajun Navy relief, who does things such as boat rescues for people that are in areas where they're completely flooded out. They work with Direct Relief, who's committed an initial $1 million in financial resources and over $100 million in inventory for medicine, medical supplies, to shelters, health clinics, etc. Now, all of this is also done in partnership with the Second Harvest Food Bank of Greater New Orleans. Obviously, what they do is provide access to food, but they also work on things such as education and disaster response as well. So if you would like to help out and you think any of these organizations are worth giving to to help the victims of Hurricane Ida, you can go into the description of this video and you will find a link to Leonard Fournette's spot fund and you can donate directly 
to his relief fund that helps all of these organizations do the most that they can to help people in some of the most precarious situations that they can be in. And that was this week's Ballers Bouquet. All right, all right. That is it for episode 51 of the Fly Route Podcast. As always, I want to say I appreciate each and every single one of you who chose to rock with me this week. I appreciate y'all, whether you're listening on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Music, Audia, anywhere. Make sure that you like and subscribe. Share the pod with a friend. And I will catch you next Friday. The fly route pod, 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 the fly route pod.